The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for March 31st, 2021. This is a bit of a magic trick because normally I am speaking to you guys and I'm recording it, you know, the, the day before it goes live. We've been trying to be very, very consistent with our episode releases, so it is always out to you at midnight on Fridays and Wednesdays, and, and this is going to be the same, right? Going to come out, but normally I'm recording it on Tuesday. That's not the case. I've pre-recorded this by a couple of days because what we're going to do here is something special. As I am uh, currently relocating to Austin, Texas, we are going to debut something uh, uh, that I think is really rad, and that's a long-form version of our political triad episode or or series <laughs> featuring myself from the political orphanage Andrew Heaton and from Congressional Dish Jen Briney this was recorded last Friday so if anything is happened in between when this is released and uh, when it was recorded then understand that time sensitivity but I think it's awesome, and I'm really, really proud of it, and uh, I think that this conversation goes in a lot of interesting places, and considering the fact that, I know specifically for Heaton and I, uh, we, we we tend to try to kind of steel man our, our, our opponents and, and our personal uh, beliefs, uh, or at least the opposition to our personal beliefs. And so a lot of times that that means that we are focusing on the things that, for me, define political conflict. Who's going to win? For Heaton, it's the the larger scale ideas, the philosophies behind politics. For, for, for Jen, it is exactly the nitty gritty of what people are doing once they get into positions of power. But this is a lot of, uh, I think... Our personal opinions are are drawn out because we are all kind of utilitarian in in the kind of product that we want to do. We want to be defined by whether or not we are of use as opposed to whether or not we are the loudest. So hopefully you guys like this. Uh, It's going to be the whole episode, and I'm, I'm very excited for it. So without any further ado, here is the political triad. I am currently driving from Los Angeles to El Paso, which means I can't do the regular episode that I would do for you guys, but we will 
have a great episode, largely because we have the return of the fan favorite political triad. Let's welcome first from the Congressional Dish, Jen Briney. Hello. Thank you for having me back. And of course, from the political orphanage, Andrew Heaton. Hello, I, I am excited to be here with you, Justin, but I am mostly excited to once again be my full self as part of our Troika. Yes, indeed. So I, I think here's where we'll start. And I know that we tend to meander, so I, I, I have no uh, doubt that we will uh, have little problem filling the hour here. But I initially went to Jen and said, hey, uh, uh, have you read the COVID bill and can we talk about it? To which you said, no, I'm I'm currently tracking other things that may or may not be presaging another budding forever war. So I will get <laughs> I will get to the COVID-19 bill at some point in, in, in the next uh, a month or so. So we will certainly have you back on when you do your due diligence on that. But while everybody is bickering about the $15 an hour minimum wage and whether or not the filibuster is going to be a, a thing going forward in reconciliation, what did you find? What was being passed that that uh, uh, is, is uh, you know, going to, to uh, be landing current freshmen in uh, high school in a foreign war in the next three years? <laughs> well, it was actually quite a few things that I found in some old news. So. Since we last talked, we have the $1.9 trillion Democrats COVID law. Yeah. I'm still working on the one from December at the end of the Trump years because that was government funding plus COVID. And then they also authorized all our wars at the same time. So that was well over 7,000 pages of legislation. And I'm still tearing through that. So. Gotcha. What I found, um, there's actually two areas of war that I'm a little concerned about. We they, they snuck a bill into the government funding slash COVID law that essentially authorizes a regime change operation through the State Department in Belarus, of all places. Um, basically, and like it turns out we've been doing this for a long time. This was all news to me, but they've really ramped it up. So it used to be that we had sanctions on the I mean, let's just say it, he's basically a dictator. They um, Belarus, since the time it became its own country, has had one dude as the president. And um, so, I mean, that mustache screams dictator. I've seen pictures of <laughs> Lukashenko. That is a dictator mustache if I've ever seen one. Yes. And um, so what they want to do now is they just had an election. Everyone's calling it fraudulent. Who knows what's true? But there was a very pretty lady who's about our age. Actually, she's in her late 30s. Her name's Svetlana Tsihanouskaya, something like that. All right. right? All right. I think I did OK on that one. I feel like, look, I'm going to give you credit for being right on that, even though I have no idea. <laughs> I practiced for a long time. So um, this lady like came in second and then fled to Lithuania. She started something called the coordination. Coward. <laughs> yeah. She started something called a coordination council that now our government is officially recognizing as a part sort of of the government of Belarus. They're saying it's the true voice of the Belarusian people, even though it's in Lithuania and it's run by a woman okay. who is in no way a part of the Belarusian government. So it's very... It's got a very like we're setting up a parallel government vibe that they're going to try to try to get stick with this lady at the helm of it. She's met with our Congress. She's met with Trump's um, State Department. 
and the Atlantic councils all over this, just straight up calling it regime change. And so I did an episode about that since it's completely off the radar. So let, let me let me just set the stage for folks uh, uh, who are not immediately geographically aware of <laughs> of, of Belarus. Uh, we are talking about a former Soviet republic that is to the north of Ukraine. In yeah. fact, it, it is it, it damn near borders Kiev, uh, which uh, obviously played a massive role in uh, the, the the Trump administration's first impeachment. And she has fled now to Lithuania, which is to the north of that, along with Latvia and and Estonia. So we are talking about all of these, you know, a Russian bordering, you know, former USSR areas. Uh, but but this just kind of seems like one of those like State Department pet projects that is just like in a drawer, or in, I guess in, in in the freezer, and they can microwave whenever they want when 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 the time is right, right? Yes, and one of the things, I mean, I'm so glad that you explained the geography because we were sanctioning members of the Belarusian government. This new, it's a dingleberry is what I always call these things because it's just hidden in this law. What this dingleberry bill did is it now allows us to sanction a whole bunch of Russians as well. So this is bigger than Belarus. This is also, you know, directly confronting the Russians because they're partnered with their next door neighbor. And um, one of the things that concerned me that made me go like, okay, I have to do a whole episode about this is when it came to the funding for the State Department operations for the next two years, it's unlimited. Now, obviously, it's authorized to be unlimited. So obviously, there are limits insofar as how much money the State Department gets and can shift around to whatever they're doing in the shadows. But the authorization is for such sums as may be necessary. So anytime you see that, it's like, okay, they're doing they're going to be doing stuff (laughs) and we can't track the money. And that seemed pretty serious to me. And what also just the way that they put this in the bill, like if you were to look at the table of contents of this massive 5,593 page law, you wouldn't see the word Belarus in there. So what concerned me about it, it wasn't even in the state department section. It was in other matters. And then there was this one line about the state department. And then you see it's, they call it, um, (laughs) human rights in Belarus. And then you read the details and it's like, oh, oh, this is a regime change authorization. Okie dokie. And you had to get well into the 2000 page range to even see this thing. So yeah, that was hidden in there. (laughs) As as far as, as far as American intervention goes though, this does sound more soft power than than some of our more robust adventuring. So like, like I think like if you're going to do sanctions, targeted sanctions make, make, make way more sense to me. Because what we used to do was we would go, how dare you, country? We are going to slap sanctions on you so that all your poor people will starve and yeah. and you'll feel very bad. Like and in the Venezuela. Not, yeah, and the, the dictator yeah. doesn't care. Weirdly enough, dictators don't care about starving peasants. They don't care. No. They do care if you, if, you, if you slap sanctions on their bank accounts and they're not able to go around. So it's a smarter way to do it. Um, I like I, I get really concerned when we when we start using tanks and things and, and providing mm-hmm. air cover or like in like in, in Yemen where we're not technically shooting people in Yemen, but we are providing them surveillance. We're providing them intelligence and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I guess also to 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 the the closest comp to me, and and we all got an education on this again with the with the Ukrainian impeachment was the differing levels of how meant uh, uh, what level of weaponry we were selling to Ukraine, right? And 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 Zelensky wanted you know, bigger missiles and, and stuff like that. And Trump was selling them to him in a way that the Obama administration didn't feel comfortable. And and that, 
it, it, it feels like maybe an expansion of of that front because that was a Russian influence opposition party in in the Ukraine. And it sounds like I'm and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, because you've done more research on this, but I'm presuming the autocrat running Belarus is aligned with the Russian Yes. Government, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't think that the breakaway lady uh, hiding in a hotel suite in Lithuania is, you know, uh, buddies <laughs> he, with Putin. You, you could actually make a very good case that he is a, a hanger on Soviet, like basically that that part of the Soviet Union just kept being Soviet, but is a, is, is a Belarus Soviet state because he was part of the Soviet power structure, I, I believe, back during the day and then just kind of stayed in power. And, and he is, just, is, he just, he's like, well, the mashed potato never went out of style for me. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. doing the same old dance. Yeah. They yeah, got yeah, to yeah. have one election back when the Soviet Union broke up and he won it. And then he was like, okay, I'm never leaving. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he's one of those guys that wins uh, by like, blue, like make, make it true. 100, 140% or so in elections because like all the neighboring countries are so impressed they'll come in to vote for him. So it's always like 140% and like, you know, and, and they'll, they'll back up and like, he'll be elected in retrospect before he was born. What what are those countries? Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that we get really concerned when the violence is introduced and the silver lining I did find as I looked through the defense authorization, Belarus isn't mentioned at all. So right now we're in the state department phase of this. Yeah. We're not yet in that war stage, it's, but we've seen how power, this yeah. starts. It started like the Ukrainian operation started in the state department and then shifted into now we're sending them defensive and lethal weapons, although I still don't know what the difference is. If they kill people, they kill people. But um, that's authorized. We're sending, we've sent billions of dollars to that government for weapons and there's a civil war there. We're definitely funding one side of that. So it's like, this is a stepping stone to that situation if we don't accomplish the regime change they want using the State Department, you know, propaganda well, and Svetlana, all that. Let's also kind of fold this in and maybe we can move on to this larger discussion, something that was brought up during Biden's first press conference last week, and that was his reframing that the greatest battle we are facing, and and for him, he even said, when the history books are written about this age, we are no longer talking about communism versus capitalism. We are talking about authoritarianism versus democracies. And, <laughs> and he specifically made the argument that that's why we need to align closer with Australia and India in relation to and, China. And drop Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Did he mention that? No, nah, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> uh, okay, good. So but, we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll really, pay, we'll pay tuppence with like ribbon cutting ceremonies with the former British empire, but we'll still give missiles and crap to uh, authoritarian despots. I think that the, the idea largely is how can we neatly tie China and Russia in a bow? And and, mm. and mm -hmm. what, you know, in terms of like an axis of politics, evil, <laughs> basically, <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's how that's how he pitched it is, is that it's like, no, the, the, the argument that we have now is uh, uh, that we need to protect democracy. We need to show that democracy works and that that kind of is is their framing on this. But to your point, Jen, if you're going to justify weapon sales, if you're going to justify intervention, that seems like the narrative that, you know, uh, 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 Rachel Maddow and Chris Cuomo will repeat that this is not this is an existential crisis worldwide, that if we don't stick up uh, uh, for democracy, that that authoritarianism will 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 ride and, and rule the world. 
I, I think a very important point to remember here is that Biden is a good guy whose heart's in the right place, so we don't need to really worry about who he's bombing. It's probably for a good reason. Trump was a jerk. Trump was an authoritarian. We really needed to scrutinize that guy. Really, any Republican in general, or if like if you've got a Texan accent, my God, watch them like a hawk. Well, that's- if there's a Democrat in power, if they have a sweater vest, if they went to a good Ivy League school, guys, they're fine. These rules exist to stop Republicans from invading countries for oil. Trust the Democrats. Go back to sleep. Don't worry about it. If they invade a country, it's for a good reason. Go back to sleep. I mean, and, th- and that, by the way, is the domestic tie-in. The domestic tie-in to the idea of authoritarianism versus democracy is to make everybody who voted for Biden feel good because mm. they can say, well, we won our war. Our war was won on uh, uh, in, in November 2020. We defeated authoritarianism at the ballot box. Uh, and and, and that, that is that is the, 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 the collection there. But Jen, you were about to say something. Well, I mean, just like Andrew pointed out, we don't give a damn how a country organizes its elections as long as they're adhering to the rules of the World Trade Organization economically. That's really what they stand for. And every hearing that I watch on this foreign policy stuff just reinforces that idea. I mean, in my Belarus episode, I reminded people of what we did to Russia, (laughs) where they did have a democracy. And as long as Boris Yeltsin was doing these economic reforms to kind of merge Russia into the World Trade Organization, it didn't matter that he set his own White House on fire. So in Saudi Arabia is a perfect example of that. We don't care that they're a repressive, horrible, totally undemocratic, despotic, feudal theocracy. Yeah, we don't give a damn as long as they're partnering with, with us on the oil. So um, the democracy label, I think, is just a cover for what they're really doing. Like democracy sounds better. Meanwhile, our democracy at home is falling apart. Um, but they use that word because they know that all of us believe in it and it sounds good. But it's it's a label, you know, so it used to be communism and capitalism. That makes it a little, you know, a lot of people here are not all that thrilled with the label of capitalism, even though that's totally not what we have. If I had to label what we have, it's like crony corporatism. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, now that people are kind of turning against capitalism, they have to find new labels. So it's authoritarian authoritarianism because like dictators, bad democracy and elections, good. And they just dumb it down that way. But when you watch their conversations in the off C-SPAN hearings, they're not talking, they're using the word democracy, but they're talking about countries that will partner and adhere to the rules in the WTO. That's what we stand for. That's what we're the muscle for. And once you and, see that, all of it makes sense. And so, and so, you know, uh, uh, China, which has had a controversial, you know, uh, uh, entry into the World Trade Organization, a lot of the, the economic China hawks point out the idea that like they're you know, mislabeled as a developing nation and stuff like that, that the, is that, is that the problem there is that, that they are incorrectly categorized within the international economic community? Well, what they wanted in the 1990s with China is they wanted China to adhere to the world trade system rules and China joined and then took all the benefits and then went like, but we're going to kind of do our own thing. And so they're really mad that they've stolen intellectual property and that China is basically using the playbook of the World Trade Organization's loan shark, the International Monetary Fund. I mean, they've been going into countries since World War II, saddling with debt and then being like, okay, to get more money from us or to even keep the money that you have, you have to change your economic laws to match what the WTO wants. They call them reforms. Yeah. China went and did the same playbook. So they went and said, Hey, you want new bridges? You want roads? You want, 
you know, all of this stuff. It's their Belt and Road Initiative. They're giving countries money and loans that they need in re- but instead of changing their economic laws, they want to own the port and they want, yeah. yeah. So it's like, and their government runs a lot of their companies. So it's not a government based on privatization, which is what the world trade organization pushes. They really work based on what I've seen from the laws that are enacted. The world trade organization helps multinationals to get into every market in the world. It's really, it's about multinational corporations having access. Well, China doesn't allow that. China has state-run companies and they want to own stuff. So it's when you hear them talk about China, it is an economic threat that now that China is using their economic power to build their military to rival us and is building islands in the South China Sea. And that's the I'm really glad that you brought this up because the other thing that I found in the NDIA, this is my next episode, is that we are now going to be doing a fairly massive military buildup around China in the Indo-Pacific. And when you listen to the hearings, the stuff that they're talking about right now is that we need to get our European partners to take more control over our, you know, the the job we do protecting this system in Europe and the Middle East. And we're going to do a massive shift to combat China. And the main beef with them is that they are running their economy a different way. And that seems like a threat to this system that the World Trade Organization is trying really hard to make global. Well, I mean, and and, and staple that to the idea that we have become more and more dependent on China and we don't seem to have a coherent idea of exactly what China is like, like is China a frenemy is China. The- I, I know what China is. Have you ever played Monopoly with somebody that takes Monopoly way too seriously? And you go to the bathroom and you come back and there's like 15 hotels on Park Place. And you're like, I don't think there were 15 hotels in Park Place. They're like, no, 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 no. Always had hotels on Park Place. Always in Park <laughs> well, Place. Yeah. I know they speak Tibet, but it just it's just mountain Chinese. That's all it is. It's always been a part of China. It's always been a part of China. And then they kill the Uyghurs over on Baltic Avenue. All what? dead. That's, and, and, and you know. <laughs> Horrid regime. To, to, go, to, to go back to Taiwan's Biden's. the best China. <laughs> it's a good well, China. Uh, uh, look, and China will tell you it's the same China. So you it is love the same China. China right? The legitimate you know, governments in Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know when when Biden is is discussing the idea of like, oh, well, we're going to outwork China. We're gonna right. we're gonna be we're gonna be that. competitive with China. It's like it's it's. <laughs> I'll finish my five guys and then get back to you on that. Well, it, it's just, it's like it's like it. That's that presumes that you're playing the same game, that you're competing in in, in in the same realm with China, which I don't think we are. And I think we have plenty of evidence to suggest that, like, they don't have an interest in 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 a any kind of straight up, you know, quote unquote competition economically, like whatever, you know, what and I think for Biden, it's more of an excuse to just invest in, in, you know, internal programs because he, and my comp to Biden has always been LBJ. He has a Senator's way of thinking. All problems can be solved. If you have high minded rhetoric that ends in money, that's Mm. it. Every problem is optics, uh, uh, divided by money equals solution. Like, like that is that that's that. And so it's like, how are we going to beat China? Well, we're going to invest in America, money in America. That's how we're going to beat China. And it's like, 
Well, I mean, look, I, I, whether or not investing in American in, in, in the fields he wants, you can debate whether or not that's a, a smart or, or dumb way to use, you know, the the federal government's money. But it certainly isn't going to matter about China, like stealing intellectual property or loan sharking throughout Africa and, 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 and Australia and New Zealand. Just that basic. There's so there's there's kind of three different things to be concerned about here. There's um, the the intervention element that Jen was talking about earlier, which is not necessarily do they have the system we want, uh, but rather should we intervene to do it when we're talking about these different countries, right? Um, and then there's there's the idea of um, economic practices which are harming us, which China's doing. They they flout intellectual property laws, and then there's this kind of um, chauvinistic attitude of, well, they can't have a higher GDP than us. And, and I'm looking at that going, you know what? I hope everybody in China makes as much money as I do, if not more. Good luck. Like it's it's our job to, to limit human suffering and the, the wealthier China gets, the, the more innovation comes out of it. I don't I don't want there to be poor country, poor people in any country. And it's you you read these reports occasionally, like I, I was reading this thing, but I think it was Freed Sicaria. I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong, but but it was about how like all the world's biggest uh roller coasters are now in India and China and like what this says about America. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like I don't like I don't wake up and go what they just beat the twister we need to double down like i don't care it doesn't affect me if other people make more money than i do like it's not a zero-sum game like china live it up just quit killing uyghurs but i don't think it's about the people that's the problem with people like joe biden what the problem that they really have with china is that china their economy is they're killing it on exports and they're not allowing our banks in to profit from their people they're not allowing our companies in to take their resources. They're not allowing the multinationals to have access the way that we want them to. So I don't think it's about helping the Chinese get out of poverty. Like they don't care that we have people living in tents all over Oakland. So why the hell would they care about the Chinese people? I think it really is. China isn't being reciprocal with their access for quote unquote American companies. I think multinationals are stateless. The fact that we call them in American is absurd, but we want to get those com- those companies into that country and they're not allowing it. And I think that if they were to do that, as they said they would when they went in the World Trade Organization, if that wasn't a straight up lie, I don't think that they would be branded right now as enemy number one, but they are. Hmm. We were we were much more honest about this in the 1880s when we sent Commodore Perry to open up Japan, where we just rocked up with a fleet and we're like, "You're trading with us. Yeah, you have to trade with us from now on." Yeah, it's all about the money. All this stuff is always about the money. Oh, certainly so, certainly so, and that and that I think is is the uh, uh, the the biggest uh, the, the the biggest thing with China is is just the, again they they are playing their own zero sum game of like we will take all of your money that you want to spend here. Yeah. As little will go out as possible. Uh, uh, anything that could not benefit us, we will export all of our things to to you, and we will make money there. You cannot come in uh, uh, here at all, and if you do, you're going to have to partner with a Chinese company that we control. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and and them's the rules. And if you don't like it, then uh, uh, pound sand. And that's you know when when they had this big theatrical. Uh, meeting out in Alaska, I think it was over over the last few weeks, where it's like, and it was breathlessly reported that like, oh, uh, uh, 
you know, Blinken was, was, uh, or whoever deputy, uh, you know, to the state department was you know, hammering them on the Uyghurs. And then the, the Chinese, uh, representative was, you know, saying that America kills black people. And it's like, ugh, we're, we're just back to this like state department thing where like, we're going to have these meetings and they're going to yell at each other. And it's just going to create more meetings where lower level people talk and eventually it'll bubble up to higher level people. And it's like, it, it just, it's just like nothing, nothing's going to get done. And, and, and not to say that the Trump policy of just randomly doing things and having Trump personally, like call, you know, prank calls G in the middle of the night was necessarily <laughs> in, in any way, coherent or smart, but it was chaotic. I, I, I think that there, there's an element now that we're kind of reverting to the mean that I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like that. Like it, in, in a way where Trump was terrible in, in so many disorganized ways, the chainsaw in the bathtub with China, I, I thought was just like, eh, I mean, what can it hurt? Like, like nothing, <laughs> nothing's really tilted in a way that, that uh, you know, advances American interest now. So why not just be totally incoherent and crazy? Hmm. I don't know what we do about it. And I also don't know how much I care. That's the other yeah. thing. Like they're telling me China's enemy number one because they're playing a long game and a smart game. And I'm just, I'm struggling to get any of the emotions about it to support well, it, anything that they're doing. I, I think another important distinction here to make is that um, there's a difference between the Chinese government and the Chinese people. Yeah. I got no problem with the Chinese oh, people. Yeah. They're just trying to make ends meet, right? Like, like countries don't compete with each other. Governments compete with each other. I got nothing. I got no problem with the sheep herder in Afghanistan. Good luck, dude. I got no problem with you. And and we're it, it's it's the governments that are clashing heads here. And uh, uh, and and so a lot of that friction is coming out of that. And needlessly so. I I, I get kind of worked up when I hear about like the country as if. All Americans are linking arms to outcompete all of the people in China. Nope, I'm buying their stuff from Walmart. Well, well that's a good point, like because we were just talking about Biden's plans. A lot of his plans aren't going to fly without Chinese stuff. How are you going to put solar panels on every roof without China? This yeah. this guy yeah. sitting behind me is a professional solar engineer. Like they're getting all their crap from China. <laughs> yeah. Same with like EV <coughs> EV infrastructure, the batteries, all of it. Mm -hmm. Like we can't go making them our enemy. And then at the same time, be like, Oh, but by the way, like, can we get a good deal on this stuff? Like, I don't think this is a fight we want to pick. We're going to have to find a way to coexist. And if they want to do their economy a different way, I don't give a damn. But if what we stand for is the entire world adhering to WTO world rules, then we're supposed to give a damn. And I just feel like as a country, we're not in on this conversation. We have to make yeah. that choice. Do we care that every single country in the world follow these rules that, by the way, are not democratically written either? They are all written behind closed doors by elites. So are we really willing to be the muscle for this system that we have no role in creating? Or can we let China do things differently and just kind of divide up, you know, the space and coexist? That's not a conversation we're having as a country, and I think we should be a part of that. Uh, can I? Uh, may I? May I swing in and play devil's advocate on on behalf of WTO? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, okay. uh, there we go. Ted WTO has I'm, now I'm, entered I'm Ted, the chat. It's, it's pronounced Watteau. I'm Ted Watteau. Ted Watteau. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the WTO of, yeah. is an opt-in organization. 
It's it's a voluntary organization. It's a, it's it's one of the only international organizations in the world which actually has teeth to it. It's the only thing that George W. Bush feared because there is no the, the the most powerful person in the United Nations is the guy that sets prices at the gift shop. It has no power. It is not an actual government. It's a talk shop. The WTO is a international treaty system. The idea behind it is that you opt in and you have to treat tariffs the same for all members. That's the primary concern of the WTO. So if I join the WTO and China both join the WTO, I I can't have steel tariffs at 30% higher for China because I don't like it than I have for France. If we're both WTO members, we have to keep tariffs the same for everybody. Everybody has uh, uh, most favored nation status in the WTO. Uh, And insofar as that exists, I'm fine with it. My, My problem is if we're trying to force countries to join the WTO, through military exercise, I have a very big problem with that because I'm, I'm a non-interventionist. But insofar as like privatizing markets and having freer trade, I think that's all good stuff. As long as it's voluntary. I agree sure. with yeah, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what's the enforcement mechanism? Because as we've, the, the, just, the, 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 as, as, as yeah. we've just discussed with China, China joined the WTO and then was sort of like, like well, I mean. I mean, the, the, the enforcement mechanism normally is that um, you go to the WTO, there's a court that arbitrates between the two disputing parties, and they're able to meter out a punishment that targets the one that's been the infractor if if it's a problem. So for example, um, George W. Bush ran afoul of WTO during his administration. Um, I think on like, I think it was steel tariffs or something. What the WTO did was it allowed the country that had uh, been affected by his illegal action to reciprocate with, I think, orange juice prices, because the WTO literally looked and went, what would piss off George W. Bush personally the most would be angering Florida. And so they basically allowed that country to anger Florida, to anger George W. Bush. But what what the, the, the enforcement mechanism is, because everybody's involved in this international treaty system of tariffs, that if you if you break it, other countries are allowed to raise tariffs in order to punish you on a particular issue. So there's a there's a punitive mechanism that's built in that that is then allowed for other member states. All right. Uh, uh, Hopefully you guys are digging this. I'm still in the car. I'm still driving. But I wanted to take time out right now to remind you guys that the way you can support this show most effectively is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is our Patreon page. That is where you get the, the exclusive content. A hundred and four episodes a year. That's what you get. If you are subscribed to the $3 club, if you are on for uh, at the $3 level, you get 104 bonus episodes a year, which I'm thrilled about. That's great. I love doing them. In fact, the only episodes this week that contain any late-breaking news content are the $3 episodes uh, uh, this week, are, are the Patreon episodes. So if you would like that, now's the time to get on the train, especially if something massive has happened while you're listening to this. If you're like, wow, I wonder, I was hoping Justin would talk about this massive news story that just happened, then I'm going to talk about it on, on, on the Thursday PX3 Extra. Man, now I'm in the weird position where I'm hoping something really big has happened. That's a that that is a bizarre, perverse, uh, uh, profit motivation. 
Maybe it's something good, though, right? Maybe everybody got a jillion dollars, and, and you want to hear how I think about it. Yeah. Anyway, takepoliticsseriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level. And now, back to the political triad. Well, let me let me let me pivot here for for a second because uh, I, I want to go off something that Heaton said, and that is the idea of separation of 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 country and people. Because something that is beyond all of our very very well uh, uh, researched, or at least Jen's very well researched uh, 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 policy discussion, is a lot of identity politics that have kind of uh, sprouted up over the last. A uh, few months, and certainly since the the pandemic began, and that is the idea of Asian hate and hate crimes, uh, and and this uh, melding of country is problem, people that we assume from country are, are, are is is a problem. Uh, it will. Uh, I'm going to make the the disclaimer here that the the we are three white people that are going to now have this conversation <laughs> but presuming the idea that it is white people that are 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 the problem here i guess we can we can we can speak to it um where is the national mood on this before we get in into like a, a reductionist kind of like is this a problem or is it not like like how how do you guys calculate this uh, uh, th- th- this particular uh, situation just writ large in, in general thing happens internationally and now there are local consequences. Like what, what, what are your thoughts on it? The, th- the thing that I was struck by with the Atlanta shooting where I think eight people were killed, I believe uh, six of them were Asian was how quickly the narrative, I mean, within minutes, the narrative basically became a new way for us to go, Look at the stupid Republicans. Look at the stupid Democrats. Because our, our, for me, I think the root of all of this is tribalism and the idea that I want to be on a team and I want to hate another team. And it manifests racially, as you point out, Justin, with anti-Asian animus and these horrible stories we've heard of violence or of people saying like, you know, get out of my neighborhood because China made the virus or whatever, as if someone who's a Chinese-American has some sort of moral culpability in a probably conspiratorial debunked theory of a lab in in Western China. That's all horrible. It's this manifestation of I am a component of a team. And I see that play out politically all the time. And I think it, that's become the new tribalism. When 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 it happened, like the, the big debate that I started seeing in media was, is this racist or not? Because people wanted to instinctively figure out a way to hate Republicans or hate Democrats. We immediately went past the dead bodies to figuring out how can we find new reasons to hate each other and more ammunition that I can use in my fight in red team versus blue team. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also noted like when I really looked into that story, the conversation that seems like we should be having is a pornography related conversation about that particular shooter because he was going after women because of his own addiction to sex and porn and everyone who's close to him basically backed that up and those spas had Asians working there but there were also two white people that were killed so it was like they immediately went to the racism thing and I've just noticed that 
I think that there is a incentive to divide us upon the lines that are not controllable. So instead of talking about stuff like economics and, and stuff like that, we're always talking about gender and race and, and wokeism. And now it's, it's, it's going a little far. Did you guys hear about Tammy Duckworth and Maisie Hirano? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. What, what, what's that? Yeah. So these senators threatened and took it back quite quickly, but they threatened to not confirm any more Joe Biden nominees, knowing that there's a razor thin margin there. So when you have two Democrats saying, I'm not confirming any more mm-hmm. nominees, it's a problem. And the reason was they said there aren't enough Asians. And so I guess they had a meeting at the White House and the White House was like, well, you know, Kamala Harris is half Asian. Like, how many do you want? Like, what's what's good enough here? And, you know, you're so woke, you're racist in that where you're just like, oh, like, is Elaine Chow good for you guys? Because that's Mitch McConnell's wife. No, she doesn't. Hold on. She's a Republican. That does. She's she threw away her Asian status the moment she (laughs) registered GOP. She's a white lady. Just like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were white dudes. Yeah, which kind of, I think you're Bobby Jindal, sarcastically white saying exactly what I'm thinking, which is like policy should matter that more than, you know, where your family came from, where your ancestors come from, what your genitalia is. Like we're, we're so focused. And I, I do think that there's inequality needs to be dealt with and diversity. It's important, but the focus being laser pointed on that all the time we're missing the policy conversations that we need to have because this is what we're always talking about so um, or, or, or or the cultural ones and 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 before we go back into the government thing i do want to to make a few points about the atlanta shooting i totally agree that this is the conversation that i think should be had is about misogyny and and uh, uh sex work and and you know it should be a lot more like the elliot rogers conversation that we had where where a you know the, the incel conversation just kind of started because this guy who was obsessed about uh, a pickup artistry because he felt rejected by women went out and killed a bunch of women like th- there is cultural things that we can take from this there are lessons that we can learn uh, and and I think that there is a racial component to it because if this guy was sexually frustrated, he didn't entrap a white hooker. He didn't go to Magic City in Atlanta, a, a famous black strip club, and shoot up those strippers. He went to these massage parlors. So there is a element for which we can we can read into it. But the idea that it it immediately just kind of tacks on to this concept of like, oh no, this is about latent racism that comes from the pandemic, which is, you know, the, the like, Oh, well, this is because of the, the red team, blue team thing. Like, like, like Heaton pointed out, I think is, is just really disappointing. Like, like it, 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 and I don't know where we are in, in that discourse. I don't know whether or not like, we're, we're, we're further away from that being a problem or closer to it or, or whether or not that's just the new reality that we're, we're now everything's recorded. We know every tragedy that happens in our, in our childhood, horrifying things could happen. Cinematically terrible things could happen. And if it wasn't coverable by your major market newspaper or, uh, uh, television station and didn't make the national news you'd live your entire life not knowing it until somebody made a podcast about it because there's 50 murder podcasts and then you'd be like wow that's horrifying uh and now that's not the case 
We know everything. If if there is a thing that happens, then that's there. And if you combine that with, I think, a very myopic lens of like, well, there is increased violence against Asian Americans. But to Jen's point, I think living in Oakland, living in West Oakland, where some of the most horrifying acts against uh, uh, Asian Americans, I don't live in West Oakland, but I live next to West Oakland. And so is Chinatown. This is an economic conversation. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the increase in Asian violence is because they're soft targets. Like, like a lot of them are elderly and a lot of them don't call the cops, despite the fact that they're, that Chinatown is literally right next to the police department because of a language barrier. Like, like the, the, there are, there are ways in which, like, if you look at the, at the breakdown of these, of these acts, like that's the problem, but we're not having an economic conversation. We're not having a conversation about a, a, a poverty or food insecurity or, 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 or anything along those lines. We're just, oh, uh, my racist uncle said Wuhan flu or, or Wu flu on Facebook. And that's the reason why this, this trend is going up. And I think that that's, that's really disappointing because I don't think it serves Anybody, even if you're looking at it on a purely racial lens, you know, I can tell you who it does serve. It serves these corporate media giants because what they want to do to keep our eyeballs on the screen and to keep us watching the ads is they need to get our emotions up so that we keep watching. That's who wins here. We get divided, but I don't think that's the goal. I think the goal is to keep eyeballs on the screen and you do that by getting emotions. And when we're talking about you know, economics, it's, it's not as sexy of a topic. You know, if you're talking about gender, you're talking about men or women, you're one of those sides. So it's easy to pick a side. If you're talking white versus Asians, you're somewhere on the racial spectrum. Um, so it's just easier to, as Andrew pointed out, not even necessarily. Well, yeah, I think he's right that they want to frame everything in Democrat versus Republican, but they also want to make it easy for you to feel tribal while watching this so that you personally feel attacked. So this, so this is narrative. Like, like part of the reason why you keep, you know, you keep watching is that you still understand the characters, even if some of them fade in and out. And so now Trump's gone, but we still have Trump racism and Trump racism is now the character. And then that will spawn a new character. And then that will spawn a new character. And think about the Atlanta story. If you want people to feel personally invested in that story, you want it to be a racism story because all of us are a member of a race. If it's about a guy who is sexually frustrated and going to these spas and feels hate for these individual women, very few of us can identify in ourselves in that, you know, like I've never gone to a spa for a happy ending. So I can't put myself in that position, but I only do edging too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the story gets much more narrow if you focus on it in that lens. But if it's, you know, white guy kills Asian people, everybody can take a side. All right. uh, Since I feel very jealous that Andrew got to stick up up for a very unpopular uh, (laughs) uh, faceless organization, allow me to stick up for big journalism as somebody who went to a fancy (laughs) J school. Uh, I wonder where that narrative comes in. And while I don't disagree with you in the end result that the coverage tends to find these narratives no matter what, I don't know if there is any directive to it. I do think yeah. that there is an element of 
tribalism that bubbles up on Twitter that because journalism is in a free fall, because advertising's in a free fall and, and journalism for its entire modern existence is run on either display advert on display advertising, really uh, the only place that they know for sure people are going to care about stories is on social media where people are currently caring about stories. And so if the hashtag is stop Asian hate, then that's going to be the topic they are going to discuss because, you know, they don't, they can take a chance and say, no, we're going to push this other narrative, but they don't know if it'll stick. Like, like that's, that, that's the thing is, is our world is bottom up and not top down. There's no, if, if it were easy to push some of these narratives from, from the top, I think that we would see a, a lot, you know, we would see a world that was a lot more like the fifties and sixties when you had, you know, a broadcast points that actually moved the needle in a way that I don't know if, there is one right now. I don't know if there is a voice that can come out and say, this is about blank. And everyone's like, damn, all right, I guess it is. I think I think you're you're very right, Justin, in that it, it is an emergent property as opposed to a top-down property. I do not think that there are people in, in smoky rooms going, um, yeah. how can we how can we divide the American people in order to profit off of it and then toasting to evil? Uh, that, that's that's not happening. <laughs> But but a couple of a, a couple of things to point out. Um, I, I, just some good middle exercises for people to run through. When you see someone really irritating on Twitter, ask yourself uh, if this person was solely motivated to be self righteous. If that was their only guiding principle, how would their Twitter feed be different than it is right now? And a lot of the time, it's exactly the same. Apply the same kind of mindset to to media uh, of. If, if my goal is to appeal to the largest amount of stupid people to keep watching our advertising, what would I do? Well, what I would do is make it as reductive as possible because stupid people love reductive thinking because they're morons. And morons love binary thinking because it's not very complex. And so the one thing everybody in America can inherently understand is us versus them. So play everything that way. Everything has one of two sides, you dumb mouth breathers. Because when you start getting up <laughs> to the, 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 the secondary and tertiary levels of thinking, people can't handle that. So dumb it down. Make it, make it reductive. What else are you going to do? Well, we know sex sells. We know that apparently British people selling food sells because we really like food. Uh, we know that people are afraid. Fear is good, right? And and again, that tribalism is right up there. This is one of the things that that I learned in comedy was I, I knew going into comedy that death and sex were, were powerful emotions that everybody related to. I didn't realize how strong that urge to be on a team is. And it flares up the more stressed we get. You'll notice that like Coming up on the election, people that were able to have coherent conversations with you would lose all of that ability because the more stress they got, the more they felt themselves retreating into an us versus them identity. And everybody needs to be on the same thing. We all need to be on the same page. And uh, it, it sells really well. So this is just this is this is a sales thing. This is this is like 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 that. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's just let's just keep. Pushing on. I, I think it's. I think it's built into the. I, I think it's built into the the media structure, in that um, drama is going to be more lucrative than serious and calm. So things which are dramatic are going to just naturally subconsciously percolate in the minds of producers faster than something else is. Uh, yeah. Because it just makes for good TV. Similarly. Uh, 
there are two we're going to bring in two people to talk about this issue well what if the issue has three sides to it what if it has what if there's actually six different viewpoints about this issue well that's confusing so we're not going to do that and it, and that's not even them being cynical it's just them going well this is if we're making our little kabuki theater because we've got an 8 minute window between breaks for pillows and soap we, we can really only have two people talk about this issue. And so the, the, the media itself drives down the narrative in a way that's think, organic rather than top down. I think part of it is also deciding where, if we're to lay out the media ecosystem, and I know this from coming from a newspaper background, when I got into newspapers, there were still people in newspapers that were very pissed off about the existence of television becoming king media. Like they were, they were annoyed. They, and, uh-huh. and it has imbued a hatred for television news in me that I keep today <laughs> burning like the eternal flame. But they were pissed that there was a point in which your local newspaper was king. That was king media. Television took that over because it was easier. You knew where you could get it every time, and it was largely free. It's now been usurped by social media. Social media is king media. Everything oh, else. I thought you were going to say podcasting and I was going to celebrate. And then you're right. It's social media. <laughs> it's social media. Social media dictates what everything else talks about. The difference is, is that there was a cabal of editors of newspaper editors and they were, however, smart. Then there became a cabal of television news directors and they were much less smart and, it, and had no <laughs> incentive to be smarter because they were producing a different thing and television is by and large for dum-dums like uh now there's social media and there's nobody like Uh this is a bottle rocket without a stem and everybody (laughs) is chasing it what Uh. i mean where the goal of journalism stopped being to find the right story to find the right balance and like provide the nuance and now it's what goes viral it's why we're struggling to make our podcasts big because we're like in the world of nuance and it's like it's easier to be the Ben Shapiro's and the Rachel Maddow's and just like pick a side and go all in on it um, because that anger creates the the viral. They're, they're going for the emotions where I feel like, you know, when I was in school learning about journalism, it wasn't supposed to be about emotions. It was supposed to be finding facts and presenting them in primary sources instead of secondary sources. And yeah television in particular, they just don't care. I was telling Andrew, I turned on CNN at the top of the hour because I wanted to see the news. And instead I got Don Lemon's take on guns. It was like, I don't care what you think about anything. (laughs) Tell me about the news. But we're getting this opinion, this emotional crap at the top of the hour. It's one thing when you do it in the last five minutes to just give us your take on what you just presented as news. They're skipping the whole news part now. And I think that also feeds well, into and, and why the, these the, stories the are being presented they. this way. The question is who's they, right? Like, so if we're talking about 24 hour news, then like I would make the argument that the most functional 24 hour news was pre broadband internet where having visuals at your fingertips was very rare. And I would argue important. It was important for us to see the Gulf war play out in a way that didn't have to touch the hands uh, of, uh, you know, whoever was editing tape at, at the CBS evening news and the NBC evening news that was valuable. It immediately lost all of its utilitarian value when, when 
there was the internet and the internet could upload a quick time file. And now yeah. like that, that, that could, that could get I, to you easier. Yeah. But think and, about and, what we're sharing. We're sharing pieces from the corporate news station. I mean, I think they're still setting the narrative because what I'm seeing all over Twitter, yeah, it's presented differently and in smaller chunks, but I'm still seeing these debates that I'm not seeking that were aired on Fox or CNN, or these hosts are the ones that, you know, they go from their Fox news show to their radio show. And I'm hearing snippets of that, or they have podcasts. It's the same humans that are setting the narrative. And then social media is kind of taking it to where it wants to go. But I think it's, I think they're still massively influential. I I think it's actually a lot of times the other way. So, so like having, having been in a, in a a television uh, production team and, and having to come with stories every day, Television televisions feeds off of newspapers, articles, blogs, and tweets. Uh, very rarely do television companies sit down and go, we're going to talk about this, this, and this apropos of nothing. What they're doing is aggregating things lower down on the food chain. So TV is like an apex predator eating gazelle. <laughs> and gazelle is the blog articles and yeah. the tweets and the things like that. So they, they, don't, they typically are basically taking a tray of existent information and picking what would be the most entertaining thing to talk about on television with symmetrical animated hot people. Uh, and, and so it ends up having that on, on the social media level. Oh, man, I ugh, never, never before have so many said so little, so loudly to so few. It's just this massive. Everybody's their own one man media station. I, everybody I know in New York from the comedy scene at some point decided to become like a one person Twitter news station that operates for free 24 hours a day that can ruin your life or maybe get you on like a top five list of sassy responses to uh, <laughs> like, like the governor of Iowa or something. It like it, it, I, we, we're in this weird place where it's like, it's good on the one hand, it's really good that, that the gatekeepers are dead. That's good. Information ought to be free. Like I, I, it's not good. I, and I think Jen, you're right. Having, having informational gatekeepers set the narrative is a very dangerous thing. And, and I, and I'm, I'm glad that the giants have been dethroned, but we haven't figured out how to not be stupid on our end. And I, I look at like, my God, I just, I hate Twitter. I just despise it. It's just this, <laughs> just this bug, this dumpster fire. And I, I'll hop on there occasionally. Like when it's jokes and like funny cat memes, I'm like, great. This is what this ought to be I, for. I'm, I'm here for all like, of all of your Suez Canal memes. I'm yeah, here yeah, for yeah. the Suez Canal memes. Um, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for all that. Yeah. But, but like the rest of the time, though, I just like I like I'll look at people and I'll look and I'm like, this person's tweeted like 40 times today and it's all angry. What are you doing with your life? Like, what are you do- go bake a cake for God's sake? Like, yeah. no one cares. No one cares. Bake a cake. Learn to play guitar. The thing about the gatekeepers, though, is that they want the power back in this particular Congress. They're on board with it. They keep having all these hearings with Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and and the yeah. Google guy. I can't remember his name, but they keep hauling them into Congress Sindar to yell Pichai. at them and be like, you need to censor these people more. So I think we have to if we really don't want gatekeepers, we have to be really conscious of I think mm. the Democrats. They're the ones that are scaring me the most well, about that's, this. That, the, that, that's the question. And, and you know, uh, uh, Biden is bringing in Tim Wu, who I think on some level, you know, he wrote the master switch. He's the one who popularized the idea of, uh, 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 net neutrality. Uh, and, and he is, he is an important thinker, but in terms of media, he's said out loud that we need to go back to a fifties, sixties, uh, you know, gatekeeper driven level media thing, because, misinformation is more of a problem than the spread of information. And, Mm. uh, that is something that I, 
that to my core, if I, if yeah. I have a core belief, uh, that I bet my life on as I exited, uh, a traditional journalism to, to make literal pennies, uh, doing whatever <laughs> I wanted, uh, like that's, that's it. Like, yeah. and, and I, I'm, I, I'm with you, Jen. I, I, I think that what Republicans want is to be mad about the fact that they're the ones getting banned. Right. Yeah. It's uh, like you're the liars, so you're getting your stuff taken down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, but what the Democrats are are pushing for is, and I think it was built on this idea that, you know, Russia stole the election with Facebook ads and, and stuff like that. That is is just A, not true. And B, the logical place that you follow this is really scary. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and even if you, b- before we go into 1984, whatever dystopic world you want to paint, it just erases the gains that we've made over the past 20 years. It, it you know, it, it, in, in terms of like the blog revolution, in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, we never know about Monica Lewinsky, which I'm sure Monica Lewinsky would actually probably prefer, but like, but the, <laughs> for the rest of us, the idea that Newsweek could spike a story that would otherwise, you know, uh, uh, embarrass the president. That to me is the larger journalism story. It, it, it spikes everything else that now has been able to escape gatekeepers, which I think is so valuable. It is intensely valuable. And, 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 and to think about giving that up is just, and there is that there is that push for it. Like a lot of people have jumped over to Substack the last couple of years, like mm-hmm. Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi, and now Green uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald. And as, as that has happened, and there have become these large, lucrative followings that these independent journalists and opinionists have, there have become calls to stop them to basically go substack you have to this i i have deemed katie herzog to be a dangerous offensive individual and she must be stopped meanwhile my substack newsletter is doing horrible that's just a coincidence by the way that i'm not doing very well in this ecosystem but i want you to change the rules to knock out my competitors and i want to be enthroned as the official legacy media that gets to sit on top of the pyramid yeah it's disturbing yeah, so, so on my end, guys, I'm with you. I'm going to keep making fun of the hoi polloi that gets really breathy on Twitter, but I'm with you in, in terms of stopping the gatekeepers. Yeah. And what's funny I, about it is like they really want to have this gatekeeper power. But remember the Hunter Biden story, like the first big one that they censored, the New York Post thing right before the yeah. election, they like took it off the internet. Yeah. What, as soon as I saw New York, New York Post, I was like, oh, I'm not interested in reading that. But as soon as they took it off the Internet, I did whatever I could to get my hands on it. So it also yeah. backfires on them. The minute we find out something censored, it's like, well, now I have to see it. Well, that that's my thing with Q. Like they buried Q, the, the Q drops or whatever on in, in, in the backyard of the backyard of the backyard of the Internet It is on the outskirts of town where nobody knows where it is. It takes a, it, a real concerted effort to do it. And yet now we cover it more. We cover yeah. it more because it's like, oh, look at the influence that Q is having. And it's like, no, now you're just in the thing where you couldn't kill the source. So now you're going to go trying to kill every tendril and like what part of society makes us think that that's a game you can win it's impossible (laughs) yeah i think you're you nailed it that the democrats 2016 just scared the hell out of them that us troublemakers were sharing those wikileak 
accurate emails that Podesta had leaked. And we found out a lot about Clinton. I don't, I don't think they ever internalized how much she was disliked. And so they blamed the internet instead. And now they're trying to make sure that can never happen again. I I, I remember I was on a flight to Philadelphia for that DNC because it had popped right before that DNC. And I was watching meet the press or whatever the Sunday show was. And I just see Robbie Mook, the head of the Clinton campaign, say for the first time that I had heard, we think this is Russia. And I was like, this dude, are you kidding me? Russia? We're going with Russia? Like that's the dog ate your homework on these obviously correct emails? Like you're not even going to push back on it? It's going to be Russia? Who's going to buy that? Smash cut. And now like our entire freedom of speech is going to be dismantled piece by piece because, uh, uh, you know, of, 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 of the shock waves of it. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well. Well, I'm glad that we ended on such a high note, but uh, I want to thank the other two thirds of our uh, political triad. Uh, Andrew, uh, what are you working on uh, uh, over the next few weeks here? Uh, You know what? I've the last couple of weeks, I've been working on governmental reform. I had on Catherine Gale, who wrote a book called The Politics Industry that was fascinating. And we talked about not getting into the policies we want to have come out, the laws that we want to have come out, but just talking about the bad incentive structure that exists within the federal government in ways that we could make that less partisan and and less horrible. So I did. I brought her on and we talked about that. Uh, and then um, a couple of weeks back, I brought on uh, former Congressman Justin Amash, and we talked about ways to improve Congress from the inside. So whether or not you agree with Justin Amash's economic viewpoint, we're talking about Congress as an institution. It was a fascinating chat. Um, I think this week I've got an episode coming out on uh, social trust and what that is, so what social capital is, how that affects the economy. So getting into um, why of American, why do we not trust anything in America in terms of media, government, et cetera, and so forth? Uh, and um, to what extent does that hurt the economy and to what extent could we develop trust? And so that's the stuff that's in the near future. Awesome. And Jen? Well, I just released my Belarus episode. So if you want to hear the sound clips and just get more details on everything I talked about there, that is already out. And what I'm working on now is the Indo-Pacific initiative, which is what they're calling that military buildup. And I'm going to look at all the different countries that are sort of involved in that and figure out why we care. And so that's the episode that I'm working on now at Congressional Dish. All right. And uh, folks, on Friday's episode, we will have... Not only the finals, the final matchup of our congressional or no, no, sorry, our greatest constitutional amendment bracket. We will (laughs) we will reveal for the first time what two amendments are going to match up with each other. And also a conversation with Jack Allison about uh, uh, the state of progressivism and and all sorts of other fun stuff. Uh, But that is going to be it for us. Today, thank you guys very much for the political triad. I'm Justin Young for Andrew Heaton and Jen Briney. See you later. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Thank you to Jen Briney. Thank you to Andrew Heaton. Hopefully you guys dug this episode of the political triad. That's a great name for a show, right? Fun if we did a did a regular show. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It'd be fun if you did a regular show. Uh, I, I want to remind you guys that you can go and uh, thank Andrew Heaton and 
Jen Briney. Uh, Heaton is at Mighty Heaton on Twitter, and you can get to Jen Briney's Twitter at or, uh, px3guest.com, px3guest.com. A reminder that takepoliticsseriously.com is where you can get your name shouted out here on the show. But, oh, I forgot. Uh, if you want to make a one-time donation, you can go to our Cash App at or, uh, PX3Cash on Cash App. PayPal is paypal.me or uh, paypal.me slash payjury. And then, of course, our Venmo Buccaneers, Justin Dash Young Dash 20 including Harold Stewart gave me $5 and said Venmo gave me $5 back in September. It's not real money anyway. So buy yourself a code red Mountain Dew and a zero ball bar while you're driving this week. That stuff is terrible for you, but you've earned it. Harold, I almost certainly will not, but I'll take your $5 anyway. And I do appreciate it. Thank you uh, to everybody uh, for, for the one-time donations. They always tickle me. They tickle me. The dollar on these platforms always makes me smile. Uh, But let's get back to our Titanic $10 tier. You can uh, get to uh, that level by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle. The Gen, middle-aged Mike, Cujo.com, Junkie, Calamity, Zap, D-Laser, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy Montana, appraisers are awesome. Snuffies off Route 44. Charles, Archie, David, Olin, and Angela, D.L., Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, Andrew... One last time, Titanic $10 tier. You get there by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And that is it for us today. One more kind of weird episode on Friday. It will be the uh, final congressional bracket preview with Brian Brushwood. We've got... Our last two amendments that will go head to head. Who are they? You gotta wait until Friday to find out. And a uh, longer conversation with Jack Allison. Always one of our favorite guests. Somebody who's who I think just has such such a quick wit and such a fun political mind. Uh, so we can uh, we 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 will talk to him on Friday in a couple of days. All right, guys, uh, at, at, at this point, I am somewhere between California and uh, West Texas. So so maybe I'm in Arizona. Maybe I'm in New Mexico. And then uh, tomorrow I, I make the final trek to my new home in Austin. But uh, I'll be I'll be lonesome. I'll be thinking of y'all till next time. Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares talk about home.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.